Sermons are not simply occasions to communicate information. They are not political stump speeches. They are not comedic orations. They are not self-help TED Talks. They are to be, if you will, kind of flashes forth of divine revelation, unpacked, explained, and applied. Now granted, they can be, although they shouldn't be, moments where preachers help their hearers become a little less satisfied with the Word of God and a little bit more hungry for entertainment. They can be occasions, although they shouldn't be, where preachers will help those who are listening become a little bit more accustomed to ear-tickling as opposed to sound doctrine. Sermons can be those things, but sermons should not be those things. What a sermon ought to be is an occasion where God's revelation is proclaimed, where it's heralded, and where it's proclaimed and heralded unashamedly, where it's proclaimed and heralded boldly. It's a time where the beauty of the gospel is explained, where the meaning of biblical texts are unpacked, where hearers can hear, understand, and even at times, and you know this if you've been here, even at times even feel the weightiness of the application of the text upon your lives. Sermons can be moments where God, if you will, reaches down from heaven and He reminds His hurting and fearful ones that He is with them and He comforts their hearts. Sermons can be, by the grace of God, moments where the wind of the Spirit will guide the drifting saint back on the right course and away from the dangers, toils, and snares of manifold temptations. Sermons can be those moments where the previously unbelieving become believing. They could be those moments where people are sitting and all of a sudden they are cut to the heart, to use language that we're going to see a little bit later on in Acts chapter 2. They're cut to the heart with conviction and then the balm of the gospel is applied to that wound and they see the beauty of the forgiveness of sins through the person and work of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. And it's the latter that you might say that we see a little bit of in the first sermon ever preached in what's known as the error of the New Testament church. We see it here in Acts chapter 2. It was preached by Peter. It's recorded here in some detail, not in its totality, but in some detail here in Acts chapter 2. We are going to continue to study that occasion today. But before we get into the text, we will do what we usually do. We will create context. You might remember last time we were in the book of Acts, and it's been quite a few times, actually. We've been studying the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost. So Peter, in one of our most recent studies, we saw that Peter stood up and he began to explain what was happening to the gathered crowd. You remember that those who were gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost, they beheld something supernatural. Galileans. Those Jews who were regarded as uneducated and unsophisticated, who had a kind of unique accent and a problem pronouncing gutturals, these Galileans were speaking in languages that were foreign to them, unknown to them, yet they were known and native to those who had gathered from different parts of the world in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. It was a miracle. They were speaking in tongues, in known languages to others, but languages that they themselves did not know. It was a supernatural work of God, the Holy Spirit, testifying to the fact that the Spirit of God had been poured out upon all of God's new covenant people. It was a new day. The messianic error was in full swing, you might say. So Peter responds to those in the crowd, some of whom you remember were saying, whatever could this mean? 
So in the crowd on that day, you had people who were curious. They're like, what is this about? What does this mean? But then you also had not only the curious, you had those who were mocking. Those who were mocking, we see them in Acts chapter 2, verse 13. They said, they are full of new wine, or sweet wine, more literally. In other words, these people are just acting drunk. That's what's going on. So then Peter stands up, and he provides clarity to the confusion and the wondering. He says, no, this wasn't a result of being drunk. As a matter of fact, you know what this is? This is in fulfillment of words that were spoken by the prophet Joel. To use language from Acts chapter 2, verse 16, Peter said, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now you can see how he unpacked the event of Pentecost, at least the initial events that they were seeing, um, through the lens of the prophecy of Joel. But as he quotes that passage he gets to a verse in that passage of Joel that provides a perfect transition and segue to what God had appointed him to proclaim on that day. He's unpacking what's happening, but then as he comes to the end of the prophecy that he's quoting, at least the portion of the prophecy that he's quoting, in Joel chapter 2, verse 32, and we see Peter quote this in Acts 2, he says, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What providence, what leading by the Lord. He ends right there from quoting Joel's scripture, right there. And that's a perfect lead-in to him unpacking who the Lord is that they are to call upon. Quotes Joel, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then it's as though Peter says, now let me explain to you what this looks like and who this Lord is. Well, with that being said, we begin in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, where we read, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. If you were to go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 14, you would see that Peter had already addressed the crowd, but he's addressing them again. This might, this might be, you might say, a kind of fresh start to his proclamation. He says, men of Israel. And notice he calls them to pay attention. He calls them to be good listeners. He tells them, hear these words. Now as a brief and I think rather important pastoral aside, let me say this. Don't underestimate the importance of those words. What words? The fact that Peter said to the crowd, hear these words. Imagine, if people gathered there, they hear him quote Joel, and then all of a sudden they begin to Google. Imagine they could. They begin to Google rabbinic prophecies on on, on Joel's, uh, rabbinic studies on Joel's prophecy. Imagine all of a sudden they just begin to text other people in Judea just to see what they're doing. Imagine they begin to check their email to see if Simeon Ben Judah had delivered the milk. Imagine they just begin to read from Genesis 1. They're like, it's a good time to read the Bible. I'm going to take this little portion of a scroll that I had copied. I'm going to read Genesis 1, even as Peter is preaching Acts chapter 2. That wouldn't have been respectful to Peter, nor to the preaching of God's word, but it also wouldn't have been profitable to them. If they were to do, by the grace of God, what Peter was calling them to do, it would have been tremendously helpful to them. As a matter of fact, you might say that paying attention would pay immediate dividends of blessing. So a little pastoral encouragement. You've got so many things that could be pulling on you when the preaching of God's word is happening. So many things that could distract you. So many things you could check. So many things you could think about. And I want to tell you what Peter told the crowd that was listening to him. Hear these words. And hear these words unpacked 
and unexplained. So Peter, after he calls him the here, notice, he calls their attention to Jesus of Nazareth. And I want you to notice, Peter didn't have to explain who Jesus was. The people knew who Jesus was. He uses the humble identification, Jesus of Nazareth, and that was enough. And furthermore, he didn't have to unpack all the miracles that Jesus did. He didn't have to unpack the 5,000 plus being fed. He didn't have to unpack Jesus stilling the storm with his words, peace be still. He didn't have to unpack the blind seeing and the deaf hearing. The people knew these things. It was, relatively speaking, common knowledge. So he tells the people, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. He's basically telling them, you know this. You know who he was. You know what he did. You are fully aware of who Jesus is, or at least what he did. Now, I want to just remind you, you can go through the scriptures, and you'll see plenty of occasions that remind you the miraculous works that Jesus did were, by and large, common knowledge. In John chapter 3, verse 2, you might remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Common knowledge. A person in the position of Jewish leadership was like, ah, we know that you are somebody who's doing these amazing signs and nobody can do what you're doing unless God is with him. John the Baptist is in prison. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verse 2, even he, while he's in prison, hears of the works of Jesus. But he had a moment of doubt, and he sends his disciples, John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus to go ask him a question. They ask him, on behalf of John, are you the Christ, or should we wait for another? And Jesus responded and told the disciples of John, Matthew chapter 11, you see this in verses 4 through 6, go and tell John the things which you see and hear. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. In other words, Jesus was saying, the kind of miraculous works associated with the Messiah in places like Isaiah 28, 29, verses like 18, 19, the kind of works associated with the Messiah, Isaiah 35, they're being done. I'm doing the very things that have been foretold the Messiah will do. And they were done so openly that John's disciples could see it and they could hear it. John could hear about it in prison. A religious leader could hear about it and so on. In fact, there's so many examples I can give you of this. But if you went from Matthew 11 right into Matthew 12, you get another example of this. Jesus um, casts out a demon of a man who is blind and mute. You see that in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22 which isn't surprising for Jesus. You look in Acts chapter 10 and you see like what he did is described there. He went about doing good and healing all who were um, tormented, possessed, and so on by the devil, afflicted by the devil. He goes and he's just doing good everywhere he goes. But I want you to see this. In the following verse, we're told, multitudes saw and were amazed. And they were saying, could this be the son of David? Multitudes saw it. This wasn't done in a corner. It wasn't done in secret. It wasn't like only three people on a quiet little island in a cave saw Jesus do miraculous works. Multitudes saw. It was common knowledge. So much so, again, that Peter could say on the day of Pentecost with thousands of people there in Jerusalem on that day, some of whom were residents, some of whom weren't, he could say, you all know about what he did. 
to use language that Paul would use a little bit later on in Acts 26, these things were not done in a corner. To take language from Paul and apply it here. Now again, if these kinds of things did not happen, Peter would not say, in your midst, as you yourselves also know. But if he did say that, and it didn't happen, I think the message would basically fall flat right there. Now, we've been having a great turnout on the Thursday nights that we've been doing the Doctrines of Grace class. And Thursday night, past Thursday night, another great turnout. And imagine if I said, right now, some of you were there, some of you weren't. Imagine if I said, Thursday night was amazing. It was the first time I ever taught an entire lesson speaking only in Koine Greek. Yeah, there would be reactions like that. And then all of a sudden, everything else that I would say at that, after that point would feel like you couldn't even hear it because you're like, that's not true. I was there. You definitely did not do that. This was so common knowledge that Jesus did these works that Peter could say it and not even fear that people were going to say that's not true. It was common knowledge. He did these things, these amazing works, changed water into wine, cast out demons, multiplied loaves and fishes, healed those who were sick, raised the dead, opened ears of those who were deaf. Common knowledge. I mean, people would bring out their ill to him. Like the cities, the, the towns would be flooded with people going to the Son of God so they might get a taste of what it's like when the kingdom of God comes to earth. And again, everybody knew it. Now, I want you to notice what Peter's doing here. Peter is making a case. This is the beginning of the case. He's making a case, and this is, if you will, the first line of evidence. First line of evidence that he's providing right now that Jesus is the Messiah is the miraculous works that he did and that everybody knew that he did. First line of evidence. Look at the language that Peter used. He uses language by describing these works as miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him. Now, the word for miracles that's used here, it's a plural form of the Greek word dunamis. Very literally, the etymology of our word dynamite comes from the Greek word dunamis. It's a word that connotes power or ability. It's a word often translated as miracles. So the fact that he's using the word miracles here calls attention to the nature, the divine nature, the powerful nature of these works that Jesus did. But then he uses other terms also, wonders and signs. In some sense, they're essentially synonymous, but they are calling attention, I think, to different aspects of the miraculous works that Jesus did. So wonders calls attention to the powerful nature of those works. But then wonders, a Greek word that's used here, plural form of a word, teros, describes, if you will, the reactions of people when they saw these miracles. People were startled. People were in a state of amazement. They began to wonder at these wonders. And then he also called them signs. Signs. Semeon. These call attention to the purpose of the miraculous works that Jesus did. They were, if you will, divine attestations, pointers, from the Father saying, this is my beloved Son. This is the Messiah. So they are miraculous works. They're powerful. They're wonders. People are startled by them. We've never seen anything like this before. And they were signs that pointed to who Jesus was, the promised Messiah. And you also know, we're still in verse 22 here. Note how Peter calls attention to the humanity of Christ. He calls Jesus a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. I want to remind you that there are Bible verses that call Jesus God. A whole bunch of them. There are Bible verses that call Jesus man. A whole bunch of them. Which would make sense. 
Because when you look in the Old Testament, the Messiah, the promised Savior who would come, He was to be both God and man. To give you one for instance of this, just to remember an easy one, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. If you were an Old Testament Jew and you had a good grasp of who the Messiah was to be, you knew He had to be both God and man. And you needed to go nowhere else in Isaiah 9, verse 6. Because you knew that the Messiah who was coming would be the child who was born. And yet at the same time, he would be mighty God. So when you see in the scriptures, some verses calling attention to the humanity of Christ, other verses calling attention to the deity of Christ, you say, yes, that makes sense. The Messiah who was to come, he had to be truly God and truly man. Fully God, fully man. One person, two natures. That's who Jesus is. And that's who Jesus was. Now as far as the miracles... And Jesus did. Notice the kind of language that Peter uses here. I love this language because I think it calls attention to how our triune God works. These miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him. I think this is calling attention to two things at least. One is a Trinitarian reality. That if you go through the scriptures, and some of you have already seen this because I've called attention to it in our Doctrine of God class and so on. You go through the scriptures, you see that how the triune God works is the Father through the Son by the Spirit. Who created the world? God. How did he do it? The Father through the Son by the Spirit. And you get a glimpse of that Trinitarian dynamic even right here. Because it's the Father working through the Son and doing miracles. Yet, if you combine this, Acts chapter 2, verse 22, with language that Jesus uses in Matthew 12, 28, watch how it gives you a kind of fuller picture and you put it all together. In Matthew 12, 28, Jesus said, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come near to you. So here, Acts 2.22, it's the Father working through the Son. You put Matthew 12.28 in there and you see it's the Father working through the Son by the Spirit. That's how God works. It's the Trinitarian God. That's how He works. Father through the Son by the Spirit. I also think this likely witnesses to how Jesus, in His humanity, having laid aside, as is often said, the privileges of deity, not having laid aside his de deity when he took on flesh. He couldn't do that. God could not stop being God. Jesus took on human flesh. He laid aside, if you will, privileges of deity. And he did miracles and cast out demons as the perfect man. While, of course, never stopping being truly incarnate God. So having spoken about the testimony to Jesus' identity and his earthly ministry, Peter proceeded to make reference to Jesus' death. Verse 23 reads, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Here we see Peter so clearly present the compatibility between God's ultimate divine sovereignty and mankind's responsibility. We were talking in the Doctrines of Grace class how God is sovereign over salvation. But God's not only sovereign over salvation. He's sovereign over all things. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 says that He works all things after the counsel of His will. That's an occasion where all does mean all. He works all things after the counsel of His will. 
He appoints the ends and he appoints the means to those ends. And in the exercise of that sovereignty, he sovereignly and sinlessly superintends the actions, even the sinful actions of his created beings. And I want you to see how that is all set forth right here. That's not me impressing that into the text. Just watch how it kind of flows out from the text. First, you notice how Peter states him, speaking of Jesus, the same one who did miracles, wonders, and signs, who was attested to by God, that same one, he was delivered or handed over. Jewish leadership had him handed over to them by Judas. The Jewish leadership handed him over to the Romans, and specifically Pilate. Pilate eventually would hand him over to be crucified. But in light of this text, who ultimately delivered Jesus to be crucified and put to death? God. God, the Father, ultimately appointed that. More about that in a moment. Look at the language here. Him, Jesus, being delivered by what? By the determined purpose. Determined purpose. It's it's language that basically means the determinate plan. This was the sure plan of God. Jesus' death and sacrifice was God's design. It was also according to the foreknowledge of God. Now we've seen in our Doctrines of Grace class, when you look at that language of foreknowledge, that sometimes it could connote God lovingly setting His affection upon an individual before the foundation of the world. Foreknowledge can be used in Romans 8.29 and have that kind of connotation. Here the idea of foreknowledge is basically God predetermining something in light of His infinite knowledge and His foreordained plan. So now just put that together. Jesus being delivered by the determinate plan. Does God ever learn anything? No. So He's always known this. This has always been part of His plan. It's been in the infinite, eternal mind of God for all of eternity. So Jesus was delivered according to the determinate plan and the foreknowledge or foreordination of God. So yes, it was the Jewish religious leadership's conspiracy. Yes, it was the desire of the crowd, right? Who shouted out, crucify Him, crucify Him. But think of how amazing God is. He uses their willful rebellion to fulfill His word, His prophecy. His prophecies. Genesis 3.15, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, all pointed to this. Prophecies strewn throughout the whole Old Testament. The cross was not an accident. It was part of God's plan. And not only was it part of God's plan, it was the peak and the pinnacle of the work of our redemption. Planned and designed, if you will, in the eternal counsel of God. Not as a reaction to the fall, from before the fall. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 talks about Jesus being that lamb who's described in verse 19 as being foreordained. Foreordained to be what? The lamb who would be slain. Foreordained from when, Peter tells us. 1 Peter 1.20 from before the foundation of the world. What was before the foundation of the world? God. God was before the foundation of the world. And so the cross was according to the good pleasure of God. As Isaiah 53.10 states, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him or crush him. And you might say, how? Why? Why would it please God to have the cross happen? Why would it please him? Think about what's demonstrated on the cross. God's love is demonstrated on the cross. Romans 5.8. 
But God demonstrated his love towards us in this, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think about God's justice being demonstrated on the cross. God is is through the cross demonstrated to be not only the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus, but he's demonstrated to be just. He makes sure that sin is paid for either in the lake of fire or on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of the mercy that's shown on the cross. Think of Jesus being on the cross and the patience that's displayed on the cross. Think of the power of God that through the death of Christ, he could redeem sinners from sin on the cross. The father loving the fact that he was going to exalt his son, exalt his son to the highest place because his son took on flesh and humbled himself to the lowest place. There are so many reasons for the father to be pleased with this plan. He was redeeming a people to give to the Son. Those who could be forgiven no other way would now be forgiven through the work of Christ. As a matter of fact, those who were forgiven in the Old Testament had the righteousness of Christ imputed to their account, looking ahead, if you will, in light of the work that he would do. But ultimately, that sin had to be paid for. But back to sovereignty, right? So God had this plan from eternity past, but at the same time, that plan was executed by those who executed Jesus. And look at the language in verse 23. They took Him with lawless hands, and they crucified Him, and they put Him to death. The language here can literally read, you put to death, having crucified Him by lawless hands. And the implication appears to be, you men of Israel, you put Him to death. And you did it through the instrumentation of lawless Gentiles. So they bore the guilt for their own lawlessness and wickedness. And as this happened, God the lawgiver was redeeming lawbreakers like us by making His Son bear the curse of the law so that we could be redeemed from it. How amazing. Part of my reaction, sometimes when I'm working on things and getting ducks in a row for a message, I have reactions that I catch in real time, and I'm like, oh, I wish others could see this as they happen in real time. As I'm just thinking that out, the next line that I write is, what unstoppable sovereignty, and my mouth is like kind of open, like, it's just amazing. Like, this, this, this sovereignty where he can sovereignly, sinlessly superintend the sinful acts of men and women to fulfill his preordained plan, it just makes me marvel. His sovereignty extends over all things. Psalm 135, verse 6, was one of those verses that also made my mouth briefly drop. What the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven, in earth, in the seas, and all the deep places. When you hang around with my family, you know you're going to hear about the seas because Zachary's going to tell you about colossal squids and giant squids. So I know a little bit more about the seas, even though I keep forgetting about the seas. And when I read a verse like Psalm 135, verse 6, I'm like, wow, I'm reminded of what I already know. His sovereignty extends down there as well. He's doing whatever he pleases down there. Even at the bottom, if you will, of the Mariana Trench, 36,000 feet below sea level with all those creatures that are down there, sea cucumbers. Look up sea cucumbers. <laughs> like they're sea cu- like interesting creatures. Um, deep sea amoebas. Like what is he doing down there? Well, he's doing whatever he pleases. He's God. 
And maybe he, at times, he's getting things ready to put his glory on display for humans who try to go down there, like James Cameron and others, to see the greatness of his glory and how he provides for creatures even at the bottom or near the bottom or on the way to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. So sovereign, he is unstoppable. But going back to that, that mysterious balance here, the mysterious reality of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, it's just there. It's just there in the Bible. You look in, Acts, um, in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 15, and you see it, for instance, of God describing Assyria as an axe that he'll wield. Sinful Assyrians, yet nonetheless being sovereignly superintended by the God of the universe to accomplish righteous judgment. You look in Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 23, and you'd be reminded that he called the nation of Babylon his hammer. But then he would break that hammer, and both would be acts of righteous judgment. They'd be an instrument, a sinful instrument nonetheless, but they would be sovereignly and sinlessly superintended to accomplish God's righteous judgment. And then in God's proper time, they would be judged for their sins as well. Looking probably the most well-known example of this in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 50. Human beings, like Joseph's brothers, they can commit acts of evil with evil intentions, and yet what they meant for evil, there's this mysterious act of concurrence. They have acts of evil happening, and yet at the same time, God is using those acts to accomplish good, even the saving of many lives. What unstoppable sovereignty. And the Bible doesn't, it gives us those pictures. It doesn't like dissect, if you will, how God sovereignly, sinlessly superintends the choices and actions of sinful men to bring about his predetermined plan and purposes. But it does set it forth rather clearly. We're, we're going to see this again, Lord willing, in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. But think about this. In the murdering of the Messiah, you have the most evil act ever committed. The blameless, sinless Son of God who went about doing good never had a sinful wrong word come out of his mouth, never had a sinful thought. He is murdered by fallen human beings. And God uses the greatest evil to accomplish the greatest good. The glorifying of himself through the redemption of sinners. Amazing. I want to drive home this point a little bit more. Uh, I enjoyed thinking about it, meditating on it, so I want to share a little bit with you. When I think about this, I just think, I ask myself the question, how unstoppable is God? And then I just begin to imagine ways in which I can illustrate it to my own mind, some of which I can communicate to you and maybe it's helpful to you. He uses the offense waged against him to accomplish his plan. Now imagine a football team running plays against the opposition. And every time they run a play, no matter what play they call, no matter whether they run the ball, no matter whether they throw the ball, no matter whether they say, oh, I'm not going to do anything, I'm just going to punt it, or they're going to try to kick a field goal. Imagine if everything they did resulted in the ball moving down the field for the opposing team. That's what it's like going against God's unstoppable sovereignty. You can't thwart him. Everything you do will be used by him ultimately in some way. It's amazing. He's unstoppable. Other illustrations came to my mind. Maybe not as realistic, but then there are things like this. Imagine you think you're on a fast break. The sport is now basketball. Imagine you're on a fast break, and you're dribbling down the court, and you're like, I got God this time. Watch this. And you go to dunk the ball, and you go to slam it as hard as you can, and all of a sudden it hits the back of the rim, and you see it sailing all the way across the court, and it goes in the hoop on the other side. I mean, you could, just, you could just fill this with illustrations. I remember years ago when I was teaching through the Gospel of Luke, I remember giving you an illustration like this. When 
And at that time, I was serving with the uh, music ministry team regularly, and I was saying to you all, I said, imagine, right, if somebody comes in, and we're doing a song, and we're serving in that way, and somebody's like, I am going to disrupt this whole thing. And they just walk up to the front, and they choose to disrupt it in this sort of way. They walk up to the drum set, and they begin to hit the drums. And as they hit the drums, every time they hit it, it's right on beat. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, they walk past the keyboard, and they begin to just jam on the keys. And as they jam on the keys, in beat and in key. And then all of a sudden, they go over to try to hit the guitar, and the strings that they hit happen to be right within lines with the chords that are played. That's what it's like to go up against God's unstoppable sovereignty. And man will be culpable for his willing sinfulness against a holy and almighty God, but God's plans will not be thwarted. And he can use evil to bring about the greatest of goods, even as he did in the cross. And let me just remind you of the beauty of that for you as a son or daughter of God. I don't know what you've gone through in your life. I don't know what you're going through right now. I have an idea when I know the congregation and so on, but let me tell you this. The truth of Romans 8.28 should be more compelling to you even now in light of those illustrations because he is so unstoppable. He actually does use all things, not some things, but all things for the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. You don't have to know exactly how. You don't have to be able to dissect it. You don't have an infinite mind. You're a creature. You can't figure it all out, but you can know beyond a shadow of doubt he is unstoppable and his unstoppable sovereignty is actually for you, son or daughter of God who is in Christ Jesus and has seen the cross. It's leveraged for your good. His attributes, all of those glorious attributes, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, his sovereignty, all leveraged for his glory and your good. What a God. Which leads me to marvel at his mercy. And you'll see this. As Peter gets to a gospel call and will call these people to repent and believe the gospel, the sovereign God of the universe, who's having these people reminded of their culpability in the crucifixion of his son, Peter keeps making this point. He wants them to feel it. He's going to keep saying to them, you with lawless hands. He's not just being general and vague. He's telling them, you did this. But the amazing thing is, the same people that he's calling and reminding that they are culpable, calling them in, in, in regards to their culpability and so on, and reminding them of it, God is actually calling many of them, about 3,000, to come to forgiveness. Now, Peter, verse 22, first line of evidence. First line of evidence, Jesus is the Messiah. Look at the miracles that he did. Next line of evidence, he was crucified according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. A little bit of an implication towards the prophecies that promised the Messiah would indeed die. And now Peter goes on to speak about Jesus' resurrection. In verse 24 we read, whom, speaking of Christ, God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And one of the things you're going to see in the book of Acts is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a resounding theme of apostolic preaching. The apostles, as well as others, were witnesses of it. We're not going to get there today, but let me just remind you, Peter is also going to give that as a witness, a piece of evidence. We saw him rise from the dead. We're not just telling you fables that we heard. We saw him. And there were many people that saw him. More about that, Lord willing, uh, later on in our study. But Jesus rose from the grave, and I just want to remind you that there aren't good alternative explanations as to what happened 
to the body of Jesus Christ. He died. Now, you've heard some of these before. Did Jesus faint and not die? Did he swoon, as the swoon theory suggests? No, he died. He had a spear thrust through his side by Roman executioners to make sure that he was indeed dead. He died. And his body was taken down from the cross by Joseph of Arimathea. It was put in a new tomb. He indeed died. So no, it wasn't that he swooned or fainted and then came back to consciousness at a later time. No, he died. That's not a good alternative explanation. Was his body eaten by dogs? I didn't even know. Like that. That's something I hadn't really heard much about until recently. I'm like... No, his body wasn't eaten by dogs. Just follow the timeline. If his body was eaten by dogs, people would have been saying, well, we were there on the cross, and then he took his body down, and he was eaten by dogs. Never happened. You know why? Joseph of Arimathea took his body down and put him in a new tomb. Never anything about his body being eaten by dogs. He was wrapped in burial cloths and burial clothes. You had Nicodemus there. You had Joseph of Arimathea there, placed in a new tomb. Did disciples steal the body? Now, I mentioned this many times. You know from me, I just find this so, um, so unbelievable, so to speak, that people would think that this is what happened because to me it's just so illogical that the disciples would steal the body and then proclaim a supposed resurrected Messiah at the expense of their lives. To me, it's just against all evidence and sound reason to think that the disciples would be able to pull off some sort of special ops kind of act and say, you know, we got in secretly and we got, made the soldiers go to sleep. You know, we hit them with tranquilizer darts. We moved this really big stone and we got the body out so we could play weekend at Bernie's in an ongoing way and think that, you know, this is, this is an amazing way to live our lives. No. <laughs> Peter's explanation is the right one. And what did Peter say? Jesus is the one whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. There's a point I can make here that I'll make Lord willing willing next week. You see God in this sermon over and over again as the prime mover. So we'll talk more about that, Lord willing, next time. But I want to call your attention to this question that many of you might have. When you look at the phrase, having loosed the pains of death. Now, at first glance, when you read that, it could sound like there was some sort of ongoing state of pain or discomfort that Jesus experienced and was experiencing before he was raised from the dead. But that's not it. Jesus wasn't experiencing suffering after the cross. Remember, on the cross, he said, it is finished. Remember, on the cross, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Remember, on the cross, he told the thief who was next to him, he said, today you shall be with me where? In paradise. But besides that, just looking at the text, you do want to ask the question, what is going on with the language? Now, some suggest, this isn't where I land. I'll tell you where I do land and what I thoroughly think is going on. But some suggest that the the Greek word that's used here for pains is actually a word that can be literally translated, doesn't always have to be translated as this, can be as birth pangs. So some people have suggested, good brothers, have suggested that Jesus' resurrection was like a new birth uh, from the womb of the grave, to use language from one commentator. Uh, That like a baby coming out of the womb, Jesus was coming out of the grave and death could not hold him down. Some suggest that. I don't think that's what's going on here with the language. If you listen to the message this previous week, just worked out in God's providence to be on Psalm 18, 
and we finished at, I think it was verse 5 or verse 6 in the message that went out this week, I think Peter is making an, an allusion to Psalm 18, verse 5. In that text, in the Hebrew text, David is recorded as saying the following, the cords of Sheol, you might say death, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. So basically, David is saying there, it's like death was surrounding me and it's like death was strangling me. I felt the pains of death. I was being compressed by death. That's the language that's connoted there. Peter, though, is quoting from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's what he's quoting from. And that can read like this. The pangs of hell, or death, came round about me. Don't think of hell in the sense of like eternal judgment. Think of hell in that Sheol sense of the word place of death. So I'll read it again. The pangs of hell or death came round about me. Hebrew parallelism, second line often informs the first line. The snares of death prevented me. It's as though he was confronted by death, compressed by it, and couldn't get by it. So I think what's going on here is that Peter, speaking to the Jewish crowd, he's making reference. You're going to see in this, in this sermon, he keeps making reference to David's psalms. He's making reference to David over and over again. Psalm 16, Psalm 110, Psalm 132, calling to mind the Davidic covenant. And I think he's calling to mind here Psalm 18, verse 5. Basically depicting Jesus as being loosed from the cords that surrounded David and entangled him. It's as though Jesus was seized by the pangs of death. Death ensnared him like cords, but he couldn't be held by it. That's the idea. And why was it not possible for death to hold him? Well, for one, just sticking with the verse, God raised him. Talk about mission impossible for death. <laughs> it, God's raising him, he, nothing, nothing's stopping him uh, from coming out of the grave. Death had no chance. Um, furthermore, remember Jesus' words? Like the Father, he has life in himself. John chapter 5, verse 26. Remember Jesus' words that he is the resurrection and the life. He's called in Acts 3.15 the prince of life. Four verses into John's gospel, we're told that in him was life. So why couldn't death hold him? Well, those are some reasons because of who he was. But contextually, what you're going to see, Lord willing, next week, contextually, God raised him. That's the first part. But then also, this was fulfillment of divine prophecy. Next line of evidence. As you go through Peter's sermon, he's basically saying, look at the miracles that Jesus did. He was crucified according to God's plan. He was risen from the dead in fulfillment of the scriptures. We all saw that he rose from the grave in fulfillment of the scriptures. So he's giving all of this evidence to the people to say, he is the Messiah that you must believe in if you are going to be forgiven of sins. So we'll go on, Lord willing, next week, and we'll look at the words of the prophecy of David that Peter is quoting from subsequently here. But I do want to make some closing applications. For now, let me just remind you, Jesus was taken by lawless hands. He was crucified, He was put to death, and He was raised to life so that all who believe in Him would experience new life, eternal life, and the forgiveness of sins forever. 
Think about this. Every glorious miracle, some of which we considered briefly today, every glorious miracle that Jesus did witnessed to who he was. Every blinded eye that was opened, every dead person that was raised, every ear that was opened to hear, every ounce of water that was turned into wine, every bit of miraculous work that he did witnessed to who he was. The promised Messiah who would suffer and die for his people. And suffer he did. He was crucified and put to death. And in his death, my unpayable debt was paid. The prince of life was entangled by the cords of death so that I might not have my sin bury me in the lake of fire forever. If you haven't believed, I urge you, I plead with you, believe the good news. Believe. So that you could sing, even as we sung earlier, redeemed how I love to proclaim it. You know who wrote that? Fanny Crosby. Fanny Crosby wrote that. Uh, a woman who was born, and from what I understand, um, six weeks after birth, around that time, was blind and spent the rest of her life blind, would go on to write an exorbitant number of hymns and songs, loved writing poetry, would write hymns and songs to the Lord, thousands of hymns she would write. One of the interesting things about her story is that her story includes her as she got older and she was blind and she had like a positive attitude about being blind. You see a little bit in her early life and you're like, wow, that's an amazing mindset that this person had. But then a little bit later on in her life, she records of how she was in a church when there were some revival meetings that were happening um, before Methodist churches had gone apostate and the gospel was actually preached there and so on. She remembered sitting and listening as the hymn was sung, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. I'd spent a lot of time listening to that hymn uh, this past weekend. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? This hymn written by Isaac Watts years earlier. She's sitting there listening. It's just being sung in the assembly. Next line goes, was it for sins that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. So she's listening and the hymn is going on. Lines like this are said, dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes to tears. If you're looking for an application today, that would be part of it. You've heard about the cross. You've heard about Jesus suffering and resurrecting. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes to tears. But when these lines were said, they hit her in a very special way. The last lines of the hymn, But drops of grief can never repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away, tis all that I could do. When those lines were said, Here, Lord, I give myself away, she recorded, My very soul was flooded with a celestial light. I sprang to my feet, shouting hallelujah. And then for the first time, I realized that I had been trying to hold the world in one hand and the Lord in the other. And this was a person who had gone to church. But all of a sudden in that moment, it clicked and God used a hymn that called attention to Christ to call her to mind of what she, called to mind what she was doing. I'm have, I have one foot in and one foot out. I shouldn't be doing this. I don't want to hold on to the world and hold on to the Lord. I want to, I want to lay it all behind and I want to give myself away to Him. Tis all that I could do. So what's a reaction to the message that you've heard today? 
If you are in Christ, if you've entered the vineyard of God, if you've already been saved and you're there, then I just want to remind you today, there's no debt of love that you could ever sufficiently pay back here. The debt of love you owe, drops of grief, nothing you could do can ever repay. God set sovereign love upon you. But you can say this, here, Lord, I give myself away. It's a new day. It's the Lord's day. And I want to serve you with my life. I want to serve you. I want to serve your church. I want to make the gospel known. That's a good reaction to the message you've heard today. And if you are outside of Christ, may today be the day you come into the vineyard. And may you say, alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my Sovereign die? You see your own sinfulness and the heinousness of your sin. You said, would He devote that sacred head, that head that was never soiled with a sinful thought, would He devote that sacred head to have thorns put upon it and so on for such a worm as I? You say the words, you kind of take them as your own. Was it for sins that I had done, he groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. And perhaps you today, for the first time, will be like Fanny Crosby, and you'll say, hallelujah. May celestial light flood your soul. And you say, he did it. He did it for me. His head was pierced for me. He bore the cross for me. He rose from the grave for me. And I am his forever. And I'm going to serve him now with zeal as his grace floods my soul. May it be. I can cry about it, but drops of grief can never repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. My life is yours. The short vapor of a life, may your life in a fresh way today be leveraged for the gospel of the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Oh, son and daughter of God, may it be. Lord willing, next week we'll continue our study of this amazing spirit-inspired text. Let's pray. Father, thank you for such grace, greater than all of our sin, for such love, the heights, the depths, and the breadth, and the width surpass our ability to even know. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for having that sacred head pierced, for bearing in your body our wrath upon the cross. We come in agreement with your word that you are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life. And there's no other way to get to the Father other than through you. And Father, I pray if there'd be anyone in this place, perhaps even in this moment, who has had celestial light, as it were, flood their soul. May the Spirit of the living God, according to your will, of course, open up such eyes afresh, Lord. Or open such eyes for the first time so that they might through Christ and through His sacrifice and through faith alone in Him, not by works that they have done, but through His work alone on the cross, may they come to You through the Son. And Father, for Your people, may there be a fresh sense in which we say we want to give ourselves to You afresh. We want to do what Paul called the Church of Rome to do, to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to You which we know is our reasonable and spiritual act of worship. May it be. May lives be changed today. May things become different. May dead hearts beat. And Father, for those hearts that are already beating, may they be further inflamed and illuminated by divine truth and by your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.